galactic empire, hyperspace, positronic brains, androids. These ideas developed decades earlier than you might think, and they are the legacy of one man, Isaac Asimov. I'm Jason Stark, host of Galaxy. Join me, along with my friends Stephanie and Jacob Yunker, as we dive into the novels and stories of one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. From iRobot to Foundation to the Caves of Steel and beyond, we explore the narratives, the meanings, and the legacy, one book at a time. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit galaxypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we will be covering uh, the fourth recap of Silhouette. For those following along, this will take us up to page 496 in Endangered Species. It is great to be back here after the the holidays. I, I don't love interrupting these novellas with the holiday break. We did that last year as well. It was the uh, the death of Dr. Island. Uh, and I'm really glad to be back and getting into this story again. We've got three episodes left, two recap episodes, and then our discussion episode. Before we get going, though, today, we do want to also thank people for participating in the social media drive that we did at the end of last year, where uh, people were taking to social media and letting uh, their their followers, their their friends, and uh, people in uh, various interest groups know about our podcast. Uh, a lot of people participated in that. We were really grateful for it. And I have just done the the drawings for the the prizes that we'll be giving out for people who who did indeed help us out with that. Uh, we don't know as we're recording this quite yet what the uh, special commission episode is going to be, but I'm really excited to find out. That's one of the the favorite things that we get to do here on the network are those special commission episodes. So thank you so much to everyone who participated. Yeah, thank you. I cannot wait either to find out what the special commission episode will be. As Glenn said, it is really one of our favorite things to do. I really want to thank everybody who reviewed us on iTunes and other places where you can review podcasts. That helps us out a whole lot. One thing you can do to support the network, if you can't support us on Patreon, which I recommend if you like what we're doing, is reviewing us and getting our word out there to other people who you might think like what we do at Clay Temple Media. Huge thanks to everybody who supports us in every way that they can. It really keeps the lights on at Clay Temple Media. But let's get going with Silhouette here. We have uh, maybe not as much work to do today, but let's get to it. Yeah, I am eager to get into this. But as you are hinting at, Brandon, this is the shortest section that we are are, are doing here in the whole novella. So that might be a, a really short episode, although we're rusty too. So we'll see how it works out. <laughs> well, last time, it was all the way back before Thanksgiving. But last time we, we left off with Johann's encounter with Heinz and the Mutineers, which was a, a very popular West German doo-wop group in the 1950s, <laughs> uh, or at least it should have been anyway. Uh, and uh, the revelation, uh, we left off with the revelation from Grit that although those guys are not serious, and how could they be with a name like that? Uh, but there is perhaps a real threat to the ship, which is the people that the computer, the people that the overmonitor has recruited. And that was really the, the end of the second act. So today we are taking up the beginning of the third act. We are starting the home stretch here. The plot is really going to pick up. And speaking of picking up, that is what we do here with Johan on the bridge on duty as the watch officer, where he has turned the view screen on to show him an external shot of the ship. Wolf gives us a very cool, very beautiful description of this, this modular ship 
in action, right? Reconfiguring itself. And I think that this is just so gorgeous that it is worth reading into the microphone just to enjoy the, the beauty of what Wolf has done, though I think we'll have some things we'll want to talk about with it as well. The rounded curve of the bridge module itself, with the hard domes and pyramids of the instrument pods, launcher casings, and airlocks that rose like temples and tombs from the smooth surface of a world eroded to its iron core. And beyond it, the shining filigree of the other modules and the writhing corridors that connected them spread like a goddess's veil down the trailing night. While he watched, one of the silvery threads parted, perhaps a hundred kilometers from where he stood. Blue attitude jets the size of pinpoints flared. The severed module was united in moments to another corridor, while the original corridor, coiling like the broken string of a guitar, curved toward the bridge some twenty or thirty kilometers to fasten on the hatch of a new module. In slow, trembling waves, the entire fabric of the ship readjusted itself to the change. And as Johan is watching this beautiful event unfold, this beautiful reconfiguration unfold, uh, Gerda, his yeoman, remarks that the ship is ugly, uh, that she thinks a ship ought to be long and slender and graceful like the captain. But this ship looks like a bacterial nucleus under a, a microscope. And, and I have to say, I love this description. I, I love the contrast that Gerda makes between what Wolf the Engineer envisions an interstellar spaceship would be and, and what they actually look like on our TV. Though, though Gerda has not quite describe the Enterprise here. I mean, that's certainly something she's she's hinting at, something she's alluding to. And I'm also struck, actually, by how much religious language is in this description of the ship as well. Yeah, I mean, even in Star Trek, we see the building of something like Deep Space Nine taking place in space. And I think Wolf imagines that a ship that's built in space to be spacefaring would look really different from something that can launch and land from Earth. And I think he's as an engineer, envisioning just what that would be. But I do want to point out the visual connection that Wolf makes through Goethe. Uh, and it's kind of an aesthetic judgment that functional design should mimic beauty norms on some level. And certainly that's how visual design works for TV shows. That may be something to unpack later. But the language of the ship looking like a bacterial nucleus under a microscope it's an important line because it, it should call to mind the voice rate passage, Johann's thoughts about how microorganisms make up a human body. Johann is in this mindset of what is the material world? How does it become consciousness? How does a material collection of things, of stuff, become something more? We talked about this in the last episode. But here, Goethe is saying this is a negative feature of material. It's something ugly. But these ideas are something that is on Johann's mind as something that's a kind of positive encounter of the world, or at least it's something he's really trying to figure out. I also think that the religious language associated with the ship is told to us from a subjective point of view of Johann's perspective. We are in Johann's mind rather than being the objective perspective, the objective point of view from the narrator. And so I think we're supposed to understand that living on this ship and the well-being of the ship, both as an idea and as a collection of stuff that takes care of itself is something that's really important to Johan. I mean, we've already seen that the overmonitor has been sarcastically referred to as God by a clerk earlier in 
the earlier in our coverage of this story, uh, the first time Johan goes to see the overmonitor, the clerk says, hey, you're here to talk to God. And so in the Faustian context of the story, we might consider this as something important to think about that for Johan, this is not uh, something to be referred to sarcastically, but maybe something that is more true than we have access to. And we've certainly seen, right, that Johan is spiritually and, and mystically minded, if not necessarily religiously minded, though he certainly loves reading G.K. Chesterton poetry alone in his room. <laughs> and and he was really trying to get that uh, Doré New Testament uh, back when he was at the, uh, the the book trading game, the book swapping game uh, earlier in our, our coverage of the of the story. So it may be that he is religiously minded as well. But I, I think we can also pair this up with what we know about Johann's belief about their mission, uh, that he clearly believes that Earth is is gone. And if that's true, then the people on this ship, the humans on this ship are, if not the absolute last human beings left in the universe, they are a significant percentage of that. It's possible that there are other ships out there doing exactly this as well. But in either case, there are not many humans left. And so this ship then becomes something sacred as well, right? As the last home of, of humanity. And I think that Johan seems to be the only person who's really uh, treating it that way, or at least as we're seeing in this narrative. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and you've brought up connections between this story and Battlestar Galactica <laughs> before, and I think that's the level where they're connected, though it goes entirely unspoken in this story, though it becomes explicit the more you dig into it. Right. And 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 of course, when we get to I don't know, the last paragraph of this story, I think this will be very much on our, our mind. But that is for next episode. So uh, let's carry on recapping uh, the chunk that we're doing today. So Gerda the Yeoman has some other news for Johan as well, which is that the, the captain intends to go down to the surface, even though she is not supposed to, to leave the, the ship. This is uh, very Kirk-like. And, and speaking of Kirk-like, we should maybe pause here and just talk about Yeoman. We last time uh, had a <laughs> A little bit of a, a conversation about which of the women whose names begin with G are yeoman and which are not. Uh, Gretchen is the one who, who works in the kitchen, and Gerda and Grit are both yeoman. And what yeoman means in this context is basically assistant to the the watch officer, assistant to whoever is in charge of the, the ship uh, at this moment. And what we learn in this section, and I guess probably could have figured out already if we'd, we'd bothered to, to do it, is that... It's not a kind of random rotation about which yeoman is going to be assisting which bridge officer, but that each bridge officer, each watch officer has a specific yeoman. So Gerda is Johan's yeoman, and Grit is the yeoman for Elise, who is the person we see taking uh, watch after Johan, which is why Johan then is always having to, to wait for an entire shift to pass before Grit can, uh, can come to his quarters for appointments that he'd like to, uh, like to have with her. So that's just to clear up things about Yeoman, because this is going to actually start to matter, as we will see here in just a moment. But the whole idea here in the information that Gerda has for Johan is that humans need a new place to live. And if the captain is going to go back to Earth and tell the rest of humanity there that she has found it, or at least found a place to live anyway, then she needs to have actually been on this planet herself and checked it out. 
Johan, of course, as we know, would like to go to the surface as well, but he has not been chosen for the away team and is never going to be because of this issue with his leg. And Gerda is surprised that Johan wants to go down there anyway because she, and, and everyone else too, uh, she regards Johan as the one person left who loves the ship, the one person left who doesn't hate living here and who doesn't spend all of his emotional energy yearning for basically anything else, yearning to be basically anything anywhere else. And during this conversation, Johan repeats his belief that there is no Earth to return to, or at least no Earth that is fit for human habitation. But he also thinks that Neuer Draht appears to have been ruined as well, right? Ruined in the same way that Earth was ruined by its sentient inhabitants, ruined by humans. The captain is currently with the Marines, which is information that Johan takes to mean that the captain really is preparing to face a mutiny after all, even though everyone else seems to be downplaying this. And in fact, Gerda downplays it again right now. She says that she doesn't think that's what's going on. But then at the same time, she does want to call another officer in to take Johan's shift so that Johan can go talk to the captain, uh, who is, is way far away somewhere else on the ship. And Johan infers here that this means that Gerda really does think there's going to be a mutiny and that she thinks Johan can stop it, but that she doesn't want to say those things aloud. Johan confronts her with this, but when he does that, she doesn't deny any of it. And she really does get someone else to take Johan's shift, even though Johan has not ordered her to do that and hasn't consented to it either. But I will say, I had a hard time seeing anything here that would lead me to believe this about Gerda that would lead me to the same conclusion about Gerda's uh, motives and, and motivations here as Johan. So I'm, I'm hoping you can help me out here, Brandon. What, what did you think of this? Uh, yeah, I just, there's just way too much going on between the lines here in this scene. <laughs> and and before, before we try to decode that, I, I also want to point out something else. There, there's another scene here where Johan is trying to suss out why he and Gerda have never become sexual partners, kind of in his own mind. It's clear to him that she's interested. She's making seductive gestures at him, but he's not interested in being sexual partners with Goethe. And that's strange to him because he thinks about the relationship between a watch officer and a yeoman like a marriage. They already share all of their time on watch together. They share the burden of responsibilities. Uh, they probably have to answer for one another and cover for one another. And so in that way, a yeoman is like a wife. This is what Johan says. A yeoman is like a wife. And if that's the case, why not toss sex into the equation? And, and this is strange. You know, it's this sort of murky system of having a female yeoman with a male watch officer. Uh, and we see a little later on that Elise and Grit maybe have some sort of sexual arrangement worked out. But Johan hasn't gone in for this. And this system is maybe why there's a sex duty roster to begin with so that, you know, animosity doesn't crop up between the yeoman and the watch officer. Maybe that duty roster is there to avoid jealousy in general. I don't know. It's something we're going to talk about with the sexual politics of this story. But here's my take on what's happening between the lines in this scene. Johan is being asked by Gerda to stop the mutiny, but indirectly. He says he feels like he's being asked to stop an avalanche by her. And these characters just speak past one another with these strong assertions that they're making, but nobody's negating what the other one is saying. And in that way, this whole story, this scene in particular, but really the whole story, feels like reading a play. 
it's like reading Shakespeare, like Hamlet or something like that, and getting a sense <laughs> of all of the language that's at you that's at play, but not getting any sense of the blocking or the performance where the body language is communicating something that is entirely contradictory to the verb verbiage that is being spewed between the actors. <laughs> and and this reminds me of a scene in like the David Tennant and Patrick Stewart Hamlet where the director of that takes uh, one of Patrick Stewart's scenes as Claudius and has some of it directed at Hamlet and then some directed at a different uh, group of people in the same room, which is a way to recalibrate the meaning of that whole scene. I can't remember the exact scene, but it's fascinating when you see it. And it's so interesting when you're really familiar with the language of the story. So I think that's what's going on. So much of this story is taking place in moments of action that we don't see because so much of the play is dialogue and the internal monologues or thoughts or reminiscences of Johan. And and in a lot of ways, I would love to see this story more than anything Wolf has done being interpreted in a visual medium, maybe many times, because there's so much that's left off the page. That's an awesome explication of what's going on here. That really helps me out. And that is also a really fantastic uh, uh, version of of Hamlet. Uh, the number of times Hamlet has come up for us on on podcasts, I mean, not just here, <laughs> but like across the, the network, uh, we really should probably do a series on Hamlet at some point. I mean, look, it's got a ghost, right? So I think that's definitely in the wheelhouse of speculative <laughs> fiction, or I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll do Macbeth or something like that, but that would be a ton of fun to do someday. Uh, but speaking of Patrick Stewart, Captain Picard does not have a uh, yeoman. There are no yeoman in TNG and, and later Star Trek, but yeomen were at the core of the conception, the original conception of Star Trek, uh, Star Trek, the original series back when it was just Star Trek. Kirk has a, a personal yeoman, uh, yeoman Rand, Janice Rand, who doesn't actually last all that long in the series. But at the start of the series, she was going to be the the love interest for Kirk because they have this close relationship in the same way that, that Wolf describes that relationship here. And so naturally, they're going to develop romantic and sexual feelings for each other. That never really came to fruition in in the show. And actually, frankly, I'm glad that that's something that Star Trek dropped. That was a smart thing to do. But it does seem that that both Gene Roddenberry and Gene Wolfe had the the same things in mind here and that Wolfe is perhaps riffing on the idea of of Janice Rand as as well. And and the yeomen here actually do seem to have more to do than uh, yeoman Rand did. Uh, Here, we we know that Grit and Gerda are uh, answering the phone, essentially, that they're conveying important information to the captain acting as a kind of uh, go between uh, that they're the one doing kind of the shift changeover as well, right? Like giving the information uh, to the, the the watch officer as well. Uh, in Star Trek, uh, Yeoman Rand seemed mostly just to be bringing coffee and, and sandwiches to, to Captain Kirk. So so Wolf is doing something a little bit different here as well. Well, okay. So just as Johan is getting ready to, to leave the bridge and, and the ship in the hands of his comrade, the away team calls up with an urgent message. They found a ruined city on the surface of the planet. And here's what the away team says. This is another brilliant monologue here. We found a city, a dead city, with all the buildings knocked to ruins, and the streets filled with sand that whispers in the wind, so that the men are all afraid of it. And there are piers jutting out into the sea, piers for the ships that the sand surges against. I went out onto one of them. 
The stones are still solid enough, though they're not really stones, and stood at the end, and I swear to you, Lieutenant, the ocean that isn't within a thousand kilometers of here washed over my feet, and the sand blew and sang so in my ears that I nearly fell, almost fell off the end of it as I stood there looking out into the ocean with the unwalled houses all behind me and the ships beating their gongs in the rain out there in the whirling bay. So that's ominous. It's creepy. It's also <laughs> hallucinatory, I guess. Uh, but still, there's the question, could there be a ruined city down there? And on top of this, the away team says that even though they are still wearing the breathing tubes, they can smell the ocean and smell damp ferns. Whatever is going on with the shadow people and souls and plants and life forms that we can't comprehend, it's clear to me that there was a civilization once on this planet, that Johan has been right uh, all along with some of his assertions. We've seen some of his assertions and assumptions be disproven as well. I feel as though Johan is more and more confronted or at least having his one of his beliefs be proven out that consciousness is kind of a, of a blight on nature, a, a disease of the universe or something along those lines. I, I, we're going to have to talk a lot about what Johan actually believes because getting to the root of his beliefs is going to be important for our discussion. But with regard to this away team, it could also be the case that they've been transported as well, that they've astral projected to another place on the planet and they're being guided by whatever remains the ghosts of this dead civilization to maybe be given a warning about living on this planet. It's certainly not the utopian vision that Francis Bacon <laughs> had in mind. And Wolf is doing something really interesting here with his vision as well, as far as the, the world building, so the sort of world building backstory here for, for Silhouette and for this this planet. Because what we learn, if, if, if we really do believe this this vision, right, if we believe uh, as the away team and, and as Johan clearly does, that there was a civilization down there, then we learn something about the the physical history of this planet as as well, right? We learned that although now, because of the ultraviolet radiation that reaches the surface of the, the planet, uh, that there is no possibility for animal life to survive on the, the planet, and that there's only vegetation and, and maybe some other types of life, but not animal life, meaning also then not human beings uh, on the surface of this planet, but that at one point in the past, that was possible. And so Wolf is showing us here that this civilization Civilization has done something to the very physical nature of its planet, the very makeup of its planet, that now has made it susceptible to the ultraviolet radiation coming off of the, the binary star system here, uh, that of course we know is now a trinary star system. Uh, but I want to point out that Wolf is writing this story at the same time that the biggest, or at least one of the biggest environmental concerns here on our own planet was the depletion of the ozone layer that was going to have a similar problem. And so Wolf is thinking through what that's going to do to the earth if we don't stop damaging the ozone layer and maybe even find a way to repair the ozone layer, which of course, actually we did. So uh, that was excellent. That was actually a, a serious environmental challenge that we were able to to address. The climate change seems to be something that we're not capable of, of addressing uh, in the same in the same manner. But that, I think, is what Wolf has in, in mind here uh, when he is uh, presenting this as clearly a dystopia that mirrors Earth itself. Right. And it could also be 
nuclear radiation as well, though I think you're absolutely right to point out that uh, the the that not having an ozone layer would mean that we are unprotected from ultraviolet radiation and uh, there's no way for life to survive on this planet. So I think that's an excellent point to bring up. Yeah. And I, I'll say, I don't know enough about the physics of the way that our planet works or other planets work to, to know if that's a, a one for one there, but it's certainly the same kind of idea that Wolf is, is working with here, that something that went wrong with the atmosphere or the magnetosphere of this planet and the, insinuation is clear that it was self-inflicted, that this this civilization did this. Uh, this passage also has me really thinking quite a bit about uh, things that we get in a story by John V. Marsh as well, right? This this ocean is uh, a thousand kilometers a- a- away, uh, though presumably that's much receded, right, from where it was uh, from where it was when there was a civilization. But as the planet exists right now, there is less surface water than there used to be because of this radiation uh, and that the planet now is overgrown with dense vegetation. And so I just wonder, does this planet resemble St. Anne? Does this planet green? Yeah, I I don't know. It could be. I don't think so. Uh, But I think if you were looking at it from the spaceship, it would give off more of a, a brownish light since all the green life is deep beneath kind of the roots everything's competing to grow downwards uh, but we do get this sense that the ocean certainly has receded but where life is possible is by the waterfalls and there are caves there i guess so this is maybe not saint anne but wolf is really thinking about environmental impacts of planets that are full of natural resources that could sustain and even cause human life to flourish. And what happens when you throw in the ability for the mind, the human consciousness, to separate itself from the importance of its environment sustaining it when we stop being bodies? Uh, that is another thing that's going on in this story. Yeah, a lot of parallels, certainly, with a story by, by John V. Marsh. So I think you're right that this is not green. This is probably brown, uh, So, which I, I wish it were called brown and not Neuer Drat, which I find extremely difficult to say. <laughs> well, OK, so we're at the, the second section that we're covering this episode. So I think at this point, maybe we're, we're mostly done. We'll, we'll see how that shakes out. But Johan cannot deal with this mysterious ruined city business because of the mutiny. And so he leaves the bridge and he goes straight to the personnel office to talk to the computer. Um, what he wants to know is whether he has ever left the ship since boarding it 17 years ago. The computer cannot determine this because the data is erroneous. Debarkation data shows no absences, but the monitoring of his cerebral radiation indicates that he has either been dead or absent on several occasions. Uh, so that's really interesting that the uh, the ship is monitoring cerebral radiation. It's monitoring people's brain waves. But the next question he has for the computer, is it possible for a human being to pass from one point to another without passing through the intervening space? Now, the answer has to be no, because that's a ridiculous notion. But the computer says yes. And when pressed for more information, the computer says that the the proof of this is dependent on the quantum nature of time and the continuous nature of extension. Uh, Extension is a concept we spent a ton of time on way back when we did a story by John V. Marsh in 2018. I think that's also when we read some Hamlet too, right? So uh, I imagine we'll be talking about, (laughs) yeah, so I think we'll be talking about this again uh, here. Uh, The computer then goes on to give a technical-ish explanation for how teleportation would work 
work. And uh, as we've said before, neither of us is a physicist, but uh, we're going to we're going to do our best with this. And what it boils down to is that time quanta uh, are not emitted at a uniform rate, but rather are emitted at a rate that is dependent upon the velocity of the body experiencing the time in question. Now, there is more to it than that. There's a lot more to it than that. This is actually a really dense, really long passage. But the computer claims that there must therefore be hypertime intervals of some duration between the emission of the time quanta applicable to a rapidly moving body, such as an interstellar spaceship. But even still, the sort of thing the computer is talking about, at least as Johan understands it, would only apply to very short distances, not a distance big enough to get him to the planet from the ship. And the computer just has no more information to give him at this. And Brandon, I am going to let you, in fact, maybe make you might actually be the better way to put it, uh, but I'm going to let you tell us more about the quantum theory of time uh, and maybe help me understand what Wolf is doing here. Well, I hope our listeners are ready for more hilarious bad physics. <laughs> I definitely drew the short straw for this novella. This is some really challenging stuff. I am lower than laity at the at the old church of physics here but this is how i understand what wolf's computer is trying to say uh, measurements of motion in space-time require the base understanding that we measure bodies that is material objects bodies in motion and material objects have extension, which means that they have a start point and an end point, like a table is distinguished from its surrounding material by the fact that it starts and ends at, at certain locations. You could graph them if you wanted to. In the same way, time measurements or time quanta require events that have a start point and an end point. So the motion of bodies can be measured in spatial coordinates, like, like plotted on a map, given that we have the right set of tools and a limited enough system to map out or space to map out and navigate. Uh, but they can also be measured in terms of relative time to the start and end of an event. Like I could say, I'm going to drive for an hour to my parents' house. I'm talking about a body in motion, but I'm measuring it in terms of uh, time, a time event. Uh, so that that could all be right or wrong, but hang in there, everybody. Uh, this would be an emission of time quanta, something like that, this measurement of time. But this suggests perhaps that there's a point of observation where all events are possible on a, on a timeline, where the flow of time from cause to effect isn't what's being measured. And this would be another dimension of time. The time event isn't what measured, isn't what's measured or observed. Uh, but as time quanta or time measurements are based on events, on start points and endpoints of that time, and bodies are based on extension, having physical limits, this place of hypertime can't be quantized or measured by us given the tools we have. They can be theorized about. And this might also suggest that from that point of observation, bodies don't have extension. There is something beyond extension that limits our minds from being in our bodies. Though they do have something like extension, perhaps in terms of the limited observation that we've seen in this story, uh, whether or not Johan has ever physically gone down to the planet or traveled or whether it's just been his soul uh, is something we're going to have to talk about in any event. 
neither of these things can be properly measured by our tools because we don't have that level of observation. It would screw with our idea of causality that might cause us to witness an effect as a cause because we're not seeing time along the same timeline and we might see bodies out of place as well. Or it could be that all causes and effects are observed simultaneously. Uh, Listen, uh, that's just a guess of what's going on here, and it could all just be completely wrong. But in keeping with the types of references that Wolf is pulling from for this story, including what we talked about before, Phantasms of the Living, in reference to you know Goethe's uh, precognition or, or uh, seeing his friend astrally project, I'm wondering if he came across a, a book by J.W. Dunn. It was published in 1927 called An Experiment in Time, which covers precognition and dream states and uh, really delves into the problems of our subjective experience of time um, to the point where he thinks that there are these planes of hyper time that we can access through dreams or through trance states and experience causes before effects or have these moments of precognition um, and, and this story, this book came up when I was researching hypertime, uh, but it also was fascinating to discover that Borges, who Wolf was a massive fan of, wrote a, an essay about this book that was certainly available prior to the publication of Silhouette. So maybe Wolf was introduced to this idea, these ideas of subjective time and uh, the way we experience it in one order, though there could be multiple levels of observation that we have no access to. But Dunn's writings also had some minor influence uh, in the life of Nabokov. So, I mean, if for those who want to go deeper into this timey-wimey stuff and maybe pick up a reference book that Wolf was familiar with, potentially, an experiment in time might be a good place to start. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I suspect that he he was more likely to have read the the Borges piece than than the actual source material. I would love to take a look at that Borges piece as well. I mean, I think that that's got candidate for Patreon all over it. Yeah, it's a short essay. It's not very long, and so I don't think it would have given him the uh, depth that the book would have. But um, it's still a fascinating piece of writing. One of the things that has really happened as a result of doing this podcast and the other podcasts that we 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 do together is that I really wish that I had more time in my life to take advantage of the fact that uh, uh, I I could ask nicely to uh, to sit in on some of my colleagues' classes in in other disciplines. Uh, I would love to go sit in on uh, evolutionary biology class. I'd love to now go. Uh, uh, take some quantum physics classes and uh, and poetics too. I mean, there's a lot of things that Wolf inspires me to want to actually go get more of an education in. Uh, I, I wish that we were allowed to go to college, you know, for ten years and have five majors and uh, instead of just picking one <laughs> one major and treating treating our education like it's a job training program. It's a real uh, real shame. But uh, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll stop that train wreck of a uh, of a of a monologue right there and uh, get us back on track. <laughs> so uh, we are in the home stretch for this episode with just one more part to to narrate here. Johan goes next to the captain, who is with the Marines in their dedicated module. In fact, that may have been the reshuffling that was going on at the the top of the episode here. And Johan tells her about this ruined city, or at least the the hallucination of a ruined city. The captain is not interested in this, really. And she says that she'll deal with it when she gets to the surface. 
Johan asks to, to go along, but she dismisses that idea, and she dismisses him as well, without any real consideration of this idea. But Johan isn't done. He wants to know, he really kind of demands to know, if she is anticipating a mutiny, because the fact that every single Marine is now up and active suggests that she is. You see, the Marines have been cryogenically frozen since they left Earth 17 years ago, and are only meant to be awakened in the case of an emergency. But the, the captain insists, and, and, and she slaps her hand on the table as she says this, uh, she insists that the Marines have been woken up because she is leaving the ship, which is itself an extraordinary circumstance, and it has nothing to do with a potential mutiny. And at this point, the, the Marine Commandant chimes in, and, and this dude is a real character. Uh, he's 22, and he is sharpening a knife while he listens to this conversation, and, and here's, here's what he says. As far as my boys and girls are concerned, yesterday they told us blast-off would be in two weeks. Now, according to what I hear from the captain, we've made it. But things are a little screwed up. Well, we're here to unscrew them. And uh, to this, the captain adds, uh, if necessary, and maybe I should say has to add, if necessary. Uh, and the commandant seems reluctant to acknowledge that part of the plan. And the commandant goes on to say here that he remembers Johan from the, the final briefing before the mission left. But Johan has no recollection of him or of the details of that briefing, which for him was 17 years ago. But this does prompt him to remember Marcella again. And specifically, he remembers the letter that he wrote her about why he had volunteered for for this mission in the first place, uh, which is a letter that he never delivered. He, he wrote this letter and then deleted it. And finally here, he thinks about how everyone he ever knew on earth is dead and that his existence there just no longer matters. And he even envisions that Marcella and the officer who conducted this final briefing meeting, uh, maybe someday years after blast off, uh, maybe they, they, they met and uh, never realized that they were linked together through him. So there's a, a little bit of fatalism here, but also, hey, there's space marines here, and that is pretty awesome. And uh, so that is where we are going to leave off the recap today. Yeah, I have a little comment to make about the marines here, uh, which is according to the captain, the marines have maintained their original orientation and patriotism, which is to say they are here to reorient the population of the ship to its original mission, kind of like we were concerned about the computer, the overmonitor, being more concerned about the mission than the people on the ship. These ideas are kind of coming together in a strange way uh, that's pretty subtle uh, on the first reading of the story. So that's something to keep in mind. Johan also notes that it was unlike him to ask a question of the briefing officer. So it must have been important. This fact that the Marine reminds him of this causes him to go into another uh, internal thought process that happens off the page. Johan seems to me to be the type of person that doesn't like to trouble authorities unless he thinks they need to be reminded of something like how to do their job or uh, they're, when they're doing something wrong. As somebody who has a similar personality type, uh, boy, that's a that's a rough deal. That's a, that's a, that's a rough <laughs> deal to have uh, th through life. But he's also thinking about how he can get a record of that question from the briefing because it was important to him then and that means it might be important now. It's something he shouldn't have forgotten. So we'll never get access to what that question is. And maybe things are on track in a way that we don't quite understand yet in the story. Um, but I do think Johan does briefly go and search for a record of that question. It's another action that happens outside of the story. And 
Again, though Johann has been awake for 17 years, the relative passage of time on Earth has been much more than that, hundreds of years. This is something you know that we brought up probably uh, in earlier episodes, but haven't brought up yet. And the Marines have just woken up, so they're still fresh from that briefing. They are still, they are not aware of all the stuff that's been going on in the ship since Pluto. But Johan being awake for that long is maybe a part of the reason why he keeps on getting a little huffy when people talk about Earth. He seems to believe that everything he cares about on Earth is gone, namely Marcella, which we've just uh, brought up, Glenn. But it's also clear that leaving Earth was his choice. And we don't know why he left Earth, why he left uh, the love of his life, maybe. Um, We don't know why he didn't explain it to Marcella or felt that an explanation was worthwhile. The only thing we know is that after the war, joining the Space Force was the only way he could be given the rank of captain. So that's all that we've got so far. The last section is short and full of action and incident, and we'll be wrapping up that in the next episode. And that's going to leave us with more than enough to think about for the discussion. Yeah, I will be real interested in in trying to think about who went on this mission and and why, how were people selected? I mean, you know, we know that Johan has volunteered, but one also assumes that there's some selectivity here as well. And and in fact, in thinking about who was going on this mission, it's really interesting that there's, there's uh, uh, that the senior officer of the Marines here, one is called Commandant. That's a pretty high rank, but he's 22. Right, that's extremely young. That's really the youngest age that you can be an officer in the American military. But it suggests that probably everybody who was sent out was young, uh, was was only recently uh, an an adult. Because the idea is that you want people who can live as long as possible, because this mission might take a really long time. And I guess also, right, we have seen that there have been people who have been awake on this ship for 17 years. Johan doesn't seem to be the only person. I mean, the captain must be one of them, although maybe that's not true. That'll be interesting to to think about, I suppose. But there are no kids, right? There's a lot of sex, but there are no kids. And so replenishing the population is not something that is happening on this ship. So people need to be young in order to be here for the duration. That in itself is a kind of a bleak worldview, right? Knowing what this mission is going to be like when you you volunteer for it, the how long this mission is meant to take. It's not even really just thinking about relativity and and whether the, the world that you know will even exist when you come back or if it will be centuries gone. Even if we're dealing with absolute time, uh, you just might die of old age before you're even able to get back, or you might get back and 70 years or 50 years or something have passed. And so whether or not relative time is a factor here, the world you left is is not going to be there when you get back. All of that paints a, a pretty a pretty bleak picture. Yeah, and I, I'm really glad you highlighted this idea that there are no kids. We don't know at what point reproduction is possible for these people. We'll get some stuff in the next section that indicates that there's a way for people to maybe turn on their reproductive facilities again. Um, but something is keeping these people from having kids. And and as we pointed out before, sex and sexual activity is treated purely as an appetitive desire 
more than it is uh, kind of a primarily reproductive function. And that is something Wolf is addressing as he's looking at the impact of the American counterculture, counterculture in the West at, at the time of the writing of the story. Yeah, and I do love the Marine Commandant character here. We are going to get some more of him. I mean, his whole attitude is, hey, I, I went to sleep yesterday and this was a military operation and I've woken up today and now it's like the after party of a Doors concert and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to set things right. But I was right to say this story silhouette, this is probably the most cinematic of anything that we've read by Wolf, who you know famously can't be adapted for, for screen. But this probably could actually in, in some really fun ways. And so that was something I was thinking about while reading this story. And in my head, this Marine Commandant is the same character as the uh, the Kevin Bacon character in uh, A Few Good Men, the, the Marine uh, attorney. So I don't know. This is Kevin Bacon when I'm reading this story for, for good or ill. That's awesome. Yeah, this story to me is the most ad- adaptable of Wolf's. I would love to see an adaptation of this, whether it's kind of like a big, dumb action movie, like a Michael Bay, or it's more like Tarkovsky. Those are the two directions you can go. And that's what I was talking a little bit about earlier with interpretation. This is the Wolf story I want to see interpreted by somebody who can handle either big dumb action or the <laughs> spiritual nuances of science fiction writers. You got a spectrum of directors who could handle that. I want to see it. All right. Well, I think now that we are fan casting a speculative film adaptation of this story, uh, we should sign off for today. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Please come join us on the Clay Temple Forum or our subreddit, Clay Temple Media. And I don't know, join us in the fan casting. It would actually be a lot of fun to fun to do there. Uh, I want to take a minute here just again to thank our Patreon supporters for making all of this possible. And also a special thanks to everyone who participated in our social media drive. That was a huge help for us at the, the end of last year. Next time, we're going to be back with our final recap episode for Silhouette. And so until then, we greet you and say farewell.